0: Okay, well, we period. There. That sounds like we have um, audio now. <clears throat> okay, Acts chapter 2. We are studying the church age in our advance through the dispensations. Acts chapter 2 records the beginning of the church age on the day of Pentecost. We have, just by way of review, we've studied the covenants. Gentile covenants in the Old Testament, the Edenic, Adamic, and Noahic covenants, and how each covenant expresses new revelation of God, which is the basis for a shift in his administration of human history. We saw that the word dispensation, which is the English word used in the King James Version, translates the Greek word oikonomia, which means an administration or a dispensation. It has to do with the way in which God is... Uh, overruling human history during a particular period of time or an age in uh, human history. The uh, Gentile covenants were all unconditional. The Noahic covenant was the last, which continues to to be in effect to this day. And then there were the Jewish covenants. The Abrahamic covenant outlined the other three unconditional covenants, land, seed, and blessing, developed in the real estate covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant, And then the Mosaic Covenant was always intended to be temporary. It was only for a short time, and it was the Constitution of Israel. That is the most fundamental thing that I think is lost, is that people that were under the misconception, so many theologies are under the misconception that the Mosaic Law was a basis for salvation and spiritual life. Only the ritual section defined that, for the nation Israel, for believers, and that was superseded by Christ's death on the cross. The remainder of the law was just their constitution for that period of time. And once the nation ended, it had uh, no longer any judicial impact. The law as a whole, though, was ended by Christ's death on the cross. Then we looked at how these covenants were played out in history. We we used this particular graphic. The real estate covenant and the Davidic covenant were given in the Old Testament, but they are not uh, fulfilled until the second coming of Christ at the inception of the millennium. The new covenant is also between Christ or between God and the nation Israel. It is fulfilled at the second coming, but there is an application of it to the church. It is the basis through which the church is brought into a special relationship with Jesus Christ, because the dividing wall of the old covenant has been broken down. We are now looking at the church age, which is going to end with the rapture, followed by the seven-year tribulation, the second coming of Christ, and then the millennium. So we've covered the pre-cross dispensations, and we have these three periods to deal with. We've looked at the overall dispensational chart, which describes the uh, covenants and the responsibilities of each dispensation. The age of the Gentiles was divided into three dispensations. The dispensation of perfect environment, the dispensation of conscience, the dispensation of human government, and then the age of Israel is divided into two more dispensations. The dispensation of patriarchs, the dispensation of the Mosaic Law, and then there is the advent of the unique dispensation of human history, that of the Messiah, uh, with the fresh revelation of full, most complete revelation of God in the person of Jesus Christ, the Lagos. And the issue there, the responsibility during that time was to identify him and accept him as Messiah. Israel rejected him as Messiah, so they endured the judgment of the fifth cycle of discipline. That, uh, Israel is then uh, taken out of the picture for a temporary time by the church age. it is the The new covenant was established at the cross. That's the new revelation. The issue in the church age is faith alone in Christ alone. The failure is that most reject Jesus as the Savior, and the church will be removed and the world judged in the seven-year tribulation. That brought us to the church age. And we looked at the fact, the basic elements of the Church Age. Central person is Paul. The name comes from John 1:17. Also, uh, in terms of calling it the Age of Grace, that through Jesus Christ came a fuller revelation of grace and truth. Responsibilities to believe in Christ. The test is the cross. The judgment's the tribulation. Uh, the grace factor is that multitudes of Gentiles are now saved. The volition aspect is to reject or accept Jesus as Savior. And secondly, to grow spiritually. These are the two most important decisions we make in life. Number one, what do you think about Jesus Christ in terms of the cross? Number two, what are you going to do after you're saved? That is the question that is rarely answered. After Christ, what? After salvation, what? And in most theologies, the answer to that is the Mosaic Law. But well, we've already seen the Mosaic Law is not part of the spiritual life for the church age. And so most Christians are left hanging, twisting in the wind, so to speak, in terms of sanctification. The angelic conflict plays an important role in this dispensation as Satan attempts to blind men's minds to the gospel and to destroy wit- the witness of believers and to assault the Jews to try to destroy uh, the Jewish race so that there will not be a possibility of God fulfilling his Old Testament pro- prophecies and promises to Israel. Now that brought us to the events in Acts chapter 2. And last time we <clears throat> went through the prophecy that Jesus made that, had, that was uh, reiterated from what John had said that that the one who came after him would baptize with the Holy Spirit. He told the disciples to stay in Jerusalem where they would receive the Holy Spirit in Acts 1.8. And then in Acts chapter 2, we have the record of what happened when the Holy Spirit descended on the apostles that first um, day of the church age. Only the apostles were involved in the speaking of tongues. We saw that by a study of the Personal pronoun, the uh, third person personal pronoun of Acts 2 1, they were all together in one place, and we saw that that referred to its nearest antecedent, the eleven apostles in verse 26. So that it is the eleven that become the first um, members of the church through the filling of the Spirit and baptism of the Holy Spirit. All three events take place simultaneously on the day of Pentecost. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, or it should be translated the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit, is when uh, we have studied that the subject of the verb in every passage where it has an active verb is Jesus Christ. If you go back and study the gospel passages, John the Baptist says, The one who comes after me will baptize you by means of the Holy Spirit and fire. The subject of the verb there, and it's an active verb, which means the subject performs the action, is Jesus Christ. The trouble is that when you get over into 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen, and just hold your place in Acts 2, and turn with me, Just to make sure, I want to make sure nobody gets lost or confused on this point. 1 Corinthians 12.13 states, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Now, the problem that occurs in this is that the way that this has so often been stated is that the baptism is of the Holy Spirit is when the Holy Spirit places or identifies the believer with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and places him in the body of Christ. Now, the problem with this definition is that the verb is here, places or identifies. That's the significance of baptism. It always had the significance, the meaning of immersion, but the purpose of immersing something was to symbolize an identification. So this is the verb. The subject in this sentence is the Holy Spirit. And in the way this has been articulated, the Holy Spirit, who is the subject, performs the action. However... Does the Holy Spirit perform the action of the verb, or does Jesus Christ perform the action of the verb? In the gospel passages, and even in Jesus' quotation, um, it doesn't mention the subject in Jesus' quotation of uh, John in Acts 1-5, but in the gospel passages, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John the Baptist always states that the one who comes after me will baptize. He states that it's Jesus. If this is correct, that the Holy Spirit does the action, then that would be a different baptism and you would end up with two different baptisms. Well, that is exactly the error that the Pentecostal Charismatic uh, church has fallen into is saying that there's two baptisms. There's one that occurs at salvation, and that there's one that occurs subsequent to salvation. The problem is that in Acts in in uh, in First Corinthians 12:13 it states by one spirit. By one spirit is a translation of the Greek phrase in plus the dative of pneuma in Numity. Now every other place that you have an expression in Matthew, in Mark, in Luke, where John the Baptist prophesies this, he says, one will come after me who will baptize you in numity by means of the Spirit. So what, in, in John's statement in the Gospels, in numity expresses the means or the instrument by which the baptism this identification takes place the in clause indicates the means not the performer of the action in the gospel passages it clearly states who performs the action it's Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians 12:13 it doesn't state who performs the action of the verb it states the Instrument or the means by the same clause in numity. When you read in your English, for by one spirit, that's in numity. That's the same clause you find in all of the other passages. What's left out of 1 Corinthians 12 13 is the subject of the verb, the one who performs the action. The verb there is, a, is passive voice. So the subject is the performer of the action is left out. You just have the Action stated is baptism, and the means or instrument stated, which is the Holy Spirit. So the best way to understand this is by means of an analogy. In the ministry of John the Baptist, J.B., takes the believer and immersed them in water. So water is the means by which the believer is identified with a new state or a change, which is repentance. Repentance means a change of mind. So it indicates his identification with a new state, and when he came out of the water, he was then in this uh, new state called the kingdom of God. Now, by analogy, what happens is Jesus Christ is the one who performs the action. Instead of immersing the believer in water, he immerses the believer in the Holy Spirit. That's the instrument. John says, just as I baptize you by means of water, the one who comes after me will baptize you by means of God the Holy Spirit. So that Jesus Christ takes the believer and immerses him in the Holy Spirit, and he comes out in a new state called Regeneration. This is the idea behind Titus 3.5. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So the most clear understand, and and this solves the problem, and shows that that whether you're talking about the Gospels, or whether you're talking about Acts, or whether you're talking about 1 Corinthians 12.13 or Galatians 2.20, it's the same baptism. There's only one baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit. And that takes place, it's non-experiential, and it takes place in the life of every believer at the instant of salvation. So, three things happen in regard to the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost when he descends. You have the baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit. Second, you have the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit and third you have the filling and once again this is expressed in Ephesians 3 or Ephesians 5:18 by a dative clause and should also be translated filled by means of the Holy Spirit that happened instantaneously with the descent of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 Then we looked at the fact that the uh, signs <clears throat> that accompanied this are expressed as a noise like a violent rushing wind that filled the whole house. And in verse 3, there appeared to them tongues as a fire, uh, distributing or dancing over the head of each of the apostles. So these are the external signs that something was happening internally to each of the uh, apostles, which had never before happened. And it's at that point that they are given the permanent spiritual gift of apostle. Remember, a spiritual gifts are sovereignly distributed by God the Holy Spirit at the instant of salvation. So an apostle is not chosen by man. It is he not, as Galatians 1-1 says, it's not from a man or from a group of men that the gift of apostle comes. It is sovereignly distributed by God the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the choice of Matthias back in chapter 1 was not, uh, from God. That was something that Peter decided to do, but Man does not choose who will be a disciple. Now, when you come down to verse 14, we find out that everybody has come along and seen what has taken place with the disciples, and they're amazed and astounded because they're hearing the gospel proclaimed to them in their own language. They are given the gift of languages. That's what the term means. It's not the gift of tongues. It is from the Greek word glosa, which means the gift of languages, and should always be translated the gift of languages. And so they're given the gift of languages, and we're told that they came from various regions, and last time I showed that these various regions can be broken down in somewhere between 8 and 11 linguistic groups. Scholars differ, but whatever the amount, it's not more than the number of disciples. It may very well be, as one scholar says, that there are only 11 linguistic groups here and 11 apostles. So each apostle was speaking in a different language to a different segment of the crowd. And they were amazed and did not understand the significance or meaning of what had taken place. So Peter stood up and explained this. In verse fourteen, and says, "Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you: Give heed to my words, that these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's only the third hour of the day—that's nine o'clock in the morning. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel." And then he quotes from Joel two twenty-eight to thirty-two, and that's what you find in verses seventeen through twenty-one. Now, I'm not going to go back through that again, but the essence of it is that the prophecy of Joel is related to the fulfillment. Of the new covenant when the Messiah returns at the second coming, we studied that when we studied the new covenant several weeks ago. The the things that are mentioned here, the pho- various phenomena that are mentioned in verse 17 and following, indicate that the daughters, your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, old men will see dreams. Um, there will be signs on the earth and in the heavens, blood and fire, vapor of smoke. That relates to the closing days of the tribulation. The sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. The day of the Lord is a technical eschatological term, a technical prophetic term that refers to the the birth pangs of the day of the Lord or during the tribulation. And the day of the Lord itself is the millennial kingdom. So, this is not talking about something that occurred at all on the day of Pentecost. If you look down and catalog all these various phenomena, none of them occurred on the day of Pentecost. Not one. The only thing that occurred on the day of Pentecost was that the apostles spoke in languages, but speaking in languages is not mentioned in joel two twenty eight and following. So the question is what does what in the world did Peter mean when he said this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. Now I went through this the last time. Some of you weren't here and you need to hear this. Others of you who were here need to hear it again because this is a crucial verse. It is the understanding of this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel is a crucial factor in the argument between charismatics and non-charismatics. And it is also a crucial factor now in the argument between traditional dispensationalists and those that are called progressive dispensationalists, but are really revisionist dispensationalists. And that refers to a new group of scholars that have come up in the last 15 years or so, primarily out of Dallas Seminary and some of the other conservative schools. And they're basically trying to argue that we are, that the new covenant not only was established at the cross, but was inaugurated at the cross, so that we are living in some present form of the kingdom. And the phrase that they use is the "already not yet" view of the kingdom. We're already in the kingdom, but not fully, not yet. It's not here fully, so it's it's come, comes in incrementally. And they would argue that what Joel is saying here is that this is t- understanding Joel two as a new covenant passage. What Peter is really saying here is this is a sign of the inauguration of the new covenant. Now that is taking Joel as a literal fulfillment in Acts two. This is want to break this down to make sure we really understand what we're talking about here, and that is that that interpretation, and it's not any different from the, um, and it's not much different from the charismatic Pentecostal. Interpretation, and that is that you had a literal prophecy in Joel with a literal fulfillment in Acts 2. So Joel 2 is viewed as literal prophecy and Acts, Acts 2 is viewed as a literal fulfillment. Of course the problem with that is what I've just stated is that nothing that occurred in Joel occurs in Acts 2, and what occurs in Acts 2 is not in Joel. So what then does, does uh, Peter mean? Well, I think the best explanation, and I did not originate this, I got this from uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, and I don't know that Arnold has ever been here. I've got him scheduled to do a, a conference here. In March of next year, he's been on the calendar for about three years now, or two years now, because he has such a booked calendar. But Arnold is a, um, a graduate of Dallas Seminary and quite a uh, Hebrew scholar. He's Jewish. He was born in probably the worst place, the worst time if you're Jewish. He was born in Poland in the summer of 1939, uh, just before the Germans invaded from the uh, from the west. And so his father fled to the east and uh, they were arrested as German spies by the Russians and sent to Siberia. But that saved the family. After the war, they were able to escape through the Jewish underground, and they made their way to New York. And as a teenager, Arnie was, uh, was uh, uh, given the gospel by some, a missionary with the American Board of Missions to the Jews. I've rarely seen anyone who can handle the Old Testament like Arnold. I mean, you're going to love it. He just—he knows every chapter and verse, and Isaiah, Jeremiah, makes me feel like I'm ignorant of the Bible. But Arnold, because of his special background and, and, uh, and one of his ancestors during the uh, mid-1700s, was one of the founders of the uh, order of the Hasidim, the Hasidic Jews. So he has quite a pedigree in terms of Jewish and rabbinic uh, knowledge and study. And he points out that rabbis interpreted the Old Testament in four different ways, and you find that the New Testament writers did the same thing. There are four different ways in which New Testament writers quote Old Testament passages. And if you don't understand that, then you're going to misinterpret a passage like... Acts chapter 2, whenever you find an Old Testament quote in the New Testament, you have to find out, well, in exactly which way are they interpreting, handling the Old Testament. Now, the first way involves a literal prophecy with a literal fulfillment. This is what some charismatics and this is what uh, <clears throat> the progressive revisionist dispensationalists try to cram uh Acts 2, into This is the category. The interesting thing is that all of the examples that you're going to see in these four different approaches are all found in one chapter of Matthew. Matthew is written, of course, to Jews, and there are more Old Testament quotes in the book of Matthew than in any other New Testament book. But what we find is in Matthew chapter 2, four different examples of how uh, the Old Testament is used. The first is literal prophecy and literal fulfillment. The prophecy is uh, given from, is in Malachi 5, but in Matthew 2, 5 and 6 we read, and they, that is the advisors that Herod called to find out where, where the Messiah would be born in order to give an answer to the Magi. And they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And then they quote Micah 5, 2 in Matthew 2, 6. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will be she- who will shepherd my people Israel. Micah 5.2 reads, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrata, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. So what we see there is a literal prophecy. The prophecy says the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. And in Matthew chapter 2, Matthew quotes it and says he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Literal prophecy, literal The second example is a literal prophecy, a literal statement. The the Old Testament passage is taken literally, but its application is merely typical because it's not necessarily a a prophecy in the Old Testament. Matthew 2.15, we read, and after uh, Joseph and Mary and the infant Jesus went down to Egypt, we read, and they were there until the death of Herod that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Out of Egypt did I call my son. Now, the phrase, Out of Egypt did I call my son, is a quote from Hosea 11.1. Hosea 11.1 is a literal statement. God is speaking and says, When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. It's referring to a historical event when God brought Egypt Uh, It brought Israel out of the nation Egypt in the Exodus event. It's a literal statement of historical fact. It's not a prophecy. But Matthew uses it as as an analogy, as a type of how Jesus would be retracing those same steps and come out of Egypt. So it's an application known as uh, typology where the literal Old Testament event pictures or foreshadows an event in the life of Christ. <coughs> Excuse me. The third way in which the um, New Testament writers quote from the Old Testament or apply Old Testament passages is a literal understanding of the Old Testament plus an application, simply it's it's just applied to an event that took place in the life of Christ. Matthew two seventeen reads, Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, saying, Quote, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Now, Rachel is viewed here as the mother of Israel. She's the wife of Jacob, whose alternate name was Israel. So Rachel is viewed as the mother of Israel of the nation and is personified there, it's used as a personification um, or a collective name for all of the mothers in Israel. Now, that is a quote from Jeremiah 31.15. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, Lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. And this is a literal historical event. It took place at the time of, the, of Nebuchadnezzar's invasion, third invasion of Israel when he destroyed Jerusalem. And there was tremendous slaughter and all the women and children in, in Jerusalem were, were uh, slaughtered and killed by the invading Chaldean army. And as a result of the death of all the infants, the mothers are weeping and mourning. And it's a tremendous portrayal of the lamentation taking place in Israel. Now, that's a literal historical event. And Matthew simply refers to that and applies that. And basically what Matthew is saying is the the weeping of the mothers in Jerusalem and in Judea, when Herod kills the infants at the time of the birth of Christ, after the birth of Christ, the weeping there is like the same weeping that occurred when the, in 586 B.C. He's just drawing a parallel. He's making an application of the Old Testament passage. He's not saying they're the same thing. He's not even saying that Jeremiah 31 is a prophecy of this because it's a liter, it, it, it refers to a literal historical event. He's just saying this is like what happened in Jeremiah's time. That is the same, this is where the Acts 2 passage fits. When Peter says this is what the prophet Joel spoke of, he's saying this is like what the prophet Joel spoke. The prophet Joel is talking about the different kinds of manifestations that would occur at the beginning of the millennium as a result of the Holy Spirit. Well, this is the same kind of thing that the Holy Spirit does, and so we should be familiar with this, these kinds of events, from our study of the Old Testament. Now, the fourth way in which Old Testament prophecies were used, our Old Testament statements are used in the New Testament, is in Matthew 2.23, where we see uh, that Mary and Joseph came and resided in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. So you still have that fulfillment language, and yet nowhere in the Old Testament do you have a statement that he, the Messiah, would be called a Nazarene. What you do have is many statements in the Old Testament, especially Isaiah 53, Isaiah 54, talking about how the Messiah would be despised, rejected, ridiculed, and in the, by the New Testament times, Nazarene is a backwater town, it's a small town on the backside of, uh, the Galilee, and anyone from Nazarene was considered, uh, illiterate, backwards, uh, they weren't, uh, uh, very bright, and so they were despised and rejected, and so the term Nazarene became a sort of a proverbial slang ethnic slur for someone who um, wasn't playing with a full deck or whose elevator didn't go to the top floor. So they, that's how they, that's how he's summarizing it. The prophets predict that the Messiah is going to be despised and rejected. Nazarenes are despised and rejected, and then he puts that together and he says he'll be called a Nazarene, which is a synonym for someone who's despised and rejected. Once again, it's not a literal prophecy, and it's not a, because there's no prophecy. It's not a literal fulfillment. It is simply a, an analogy, a, a summary, an application of what has been said as a whole about the Messiah in the Old Testament. So when we come to the Scriptures, it's not always simple to understand what is going on, and we always have to interpret the Scriptures in the light of the time in which they were written. And if you don't understand how the rabbis and how Jews would apply Old Testament passages to their contemporary times, then you can misinterpret what the writers of Scripture are doing when they're quoting Old Testament passages. So it calls for some understanding of the background and the Jewish flavor of the Old Testament. So when Peter says, this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel, he is not saying this is a literal fulfillment of Joel. He is not saying that the new covenant has been inaugurated. He is not saying that the events of Joel took place on the day of Pentecost. He is simply saying that this manifestation of the power of the Holy Spirit is like that or similar to that, which was uh, prophesied by Joel, which would take place, at the coming of the kingdom when the new covenant is established. That's the only point that he is making. And again and again, uh, we see passages in the New Testament. Hebrews 9, I believe, is another example. When there's a quote of, when the writer of Hebrews quotes the whole uh, Jeremiah 31 passage on the new covenant just to make the simple point that the text says new covenant. Be- and that indicates that the old must be temporary. He's, he's not making any more of a point than that, but he wants to quote the entire passage in context. So this is not uncommon for, for them to quote an entire a section of five or six verses only to make one simple point. So on the day of Pentecost, God's plan is announced, and there is a unique feature, and that is that The apostles speak, proclaim the gospel in languages they have not gone through the normal process to learn. And that is because, according to Isaiah uh, chapter 28, the Jews had been warned that when they heard uh, stammering lips and stuttering tongue, in other words, a foreign language, when they heard the gospel proclaimed to them in a foreign language, then that would be a sign that judgment was near. So this is a warning sign. Paul refers to that also in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and quotes from Isaiah 28. And the point that he is making is that, and the point that God is making to Israel is a warning that I am about to judge you because you have rejected the Messiah. And the the gift of languages was a sign of judgment to Israel, but they ignored it. And so God eventually judged them by destroying the nation in 70 A.D. Now, when you go through the book of Acts, you must understand that this is a transitional book. It is a transitional period because, think about it, in Israel, all these things have happened. You've had three years of the ministry of Christ and you've had his death on the cross. But communication is very slow then. You don't have email. You didn't even have the Pony Express. And it would take uh, weeks, if not months, for news to travel. And there were... Thousands and thousands of Old Testament saints, Jews, who were scattered all over the Roman Empire who never heard of Jesus of Nazareth. We know from an episode in Acts chapter 17 that approximately 15 years later, When the Apostle Paul shows up in Ephesus, he finds a group of disciples from John the Baptist who haven't heard about Jesus, who haven't heard about the resurrection, who haven't heard about any of these events. They're still classified as Old Testament saints. And so when Paul presents the gospel to them, in fact, that's the last group in the transition phase of Acts, they hear the gospel, the Holy Spirit descends on them just like he did at Pentecost, and they speak in languages. Every, you have four different situations like that in Acts. You have the day of Pentecost. Then you have the Samaritan believers who are half-breeds. They're half-Jewish, half-Gentile. They're despised by the Jews. Uh, Peter and John take the gospel uh, to them. They don't speak in tongues. That's absent from that event. And then you have in Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius, you have the um, uh, Peter taking the gospel to Gentiles, each time it notice Peter's involved, Peter and John, Peter, and then finally Paul to the to uh the John the Baptist disciples in Acts seventeen. It's always at the hand of the apostle that this takes place, indicating that there is unity. This is one type of event and there is now one body. There are not multiple groups within the church. There's only one group. And this was part of the one of the reasons that this happened. Four different ways in the Old Testament to each different group. Under Old Testament law, these would have been classified as different segments of the population. And what God is showing is now there's no longer any ethnic division in the church. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither bond nor slave. There's neither male nor female. We are all one in the body of Christ. Under the Mosaic law, access to God was limited... By your ethnicity, only Jews could go into the inner holy place and worship God. Uh, Women did not have access. If you were a slave, you did not have access. So all of these things limited your access to God. But in the church age, we now have equal privilege and equal opportunity for every single believer. We're all one in the body of Christ, and that's what Acts. one of the things that Acts is showing is that this one event, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, is what unites every single believer in the body of Christ, and it happens at the instant of salvation. And it is not necessarily signified by speaking in tongues, because there was no speaking in tongues with the Samaritans. That's another problem that the... Uh, Old Pentecostals have, is they wanted to make speaking in tongues the necessary sign of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And yet, we know that uh, from the situation with the Samaritans, that that was not true biblically. Now, all of this indicates that there is something now that is unique and distinct about the church age. And this is... What we need to go through next is I have about seven points on the um, unique aspects of the church age. Point number one, the church began on the day of Pentecost. It did not begin with Adam. It did not begin with Noah. It did not begin with Abraham, Moses, or any other Old Testament personage. It began with The events on the day of Pentecost. Now, every now and then, you will read some writer and they will make a reference to the church in the Old Testament. That's typical in replacement theology. In Roman Catholic theology, Lutheran theology, Reformed theology, Covenant theology, they'll refer to Israel as the church in the Old Testament. But the Bible never calls Israel the church. And the church is never called Israel in the New Testament. Second, the end of the church age is the rapture. The rapture is called the exit resurrection of the church. When Jesus Christ returns in the clouds in the air, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and will remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds. First Thessalonians uh, chapter 4. Paul writes, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. That's a euphemism for believers who have uh, died physically, absent from the body, face to face with the Lord. That you may not grieve, as do those who have no hope. Now, I want you to notice, because sometimes Christians get the idea that if they're in fellowship and walking with the Lord, that there's no sorrow or no sadness in life. Well, certainly there is. Uh, Paul doesn't say that you won't grieve at all. He says you won't grieve like those who have no hope. There will still be grief and there will still be sorrow and heartache, but at the same time there is stability and there is peace and calm because of uh, the doctrine that we have in our soul and because we understand the principles outlined here in 1 Thessalonians 4. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, that's the gospel, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Notice, at this time we meet the Lord in the air. At the second coming, the Lord returns to the earth. Philippians 3.10 and 11, Paul states, "...that I may know him." and the power of his resurrection, this is talking about the ultimate goal in advancing to spiritual maturity, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection, and there is the word ex-anastasis. It's not simply resurrection. It is the out-resurrection from the dead. You have ex as a prefix um, to anastasis, and then you also have it repeated in the phrase ...from the dead, which is the preposition ek at the last clause. So it's talking about the out-resurrection, out from the dead. It's a repetition for emphasis, and Paul is talking about the rapture. That's a reference to the rapture there. Philippians 3.21, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. That's what happens at the rapture. We are instantaneously transformed from a body of mortality to immortality. We get our resurrection body and there will no longer be it will no longer be subject to health problems it will no longer be subject to uh, weight problems we won't have to have that uh, annual uh, diet thing every new year's where we decide we're going to lose those christmas pounds and uh we won't be be uh, succumbing to illness anymore and we will have uh, everlasting life john 14:1 jesus said let not your heart be troubled Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. Notice, he's not coming to take us with him to the earth. That's the position known as post-tribulation rapture, that Jesus sort of raptures the church at the end of the tribulation on his way down. If that were true, then as Jesus is coming down, we go up, get a resurrection body, and come to the earth with him. But John 14.3 says, He will receive us to himself, that where I am, you may be also. And where is he? In his father's house. So John 14.3 clearly indicates that we go from the earth to our heavenly dwelling places, not back to the earth. Third point. The church is said to be a mystery in the New Testament. It is called a mystery from the Greek word mysterion, which indicates a previously unrevealed doctrine. A previously unrevealed doctrine. That means that there is no mention of the church in the Old Testament. It was unforeseen by the Old Testament prophets. When they looked down the corridors of time, it's like when you're out on the plains of Nebraska and you're, you see the front range in Colorado and it, all, all you see is just a silhouette of all the mountains. But the closer you come to to the mountains, you begin to distinguish the different peaks. And as you get right up into the mountains, you begin to realize that, that some of the peaks that seem to be very close together when you are out on the plains are separated by enormous valleys that are, uh, maybe 40, 50, 60, or 100 miles in, in width that separate those peaks. And that's what happened in the Old Testament is they looked forward and they looked, they, they, they spoke as if the first and second comings of Christ were almost at the same time. But now, by a tremendous valley between the first and second comings of Christ, which is the church age. So it was not revealed in the Old Testament. This is clear from numerous passages... In the New Testament, Romans 16:25 and 26, "...now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret from long ages past." So that is the New Testament doctrine of the church age and the spiritual life of the church age. But now is manifested or revealed and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God has been made known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith. Ephesians 3 reiterates the significance of the mystery doctrine. Paul says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship, and there is our word oikonomia, which means dispensation or administration, If indeed you have heard of the administration of God's grace, the church age, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery. So this is previously unrevealed doctrine related to the present age called the the age of grace or the church age. As I wrote before in brief, by referring to this, when when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. This, I take it, is an it alludes to the fact that Jesus Christ in his spiritual life was a, a spiritual life distinct from that which had gone before. The spiritual life of the church, I mean, of the uh, Old Testament believer was based on the faith rest drill. He was not indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. He was not filled with God the Holy Spirit. He did not have a completed canon. His relationship with God was not based on an empowerment by God the Holy Spirit. That is unique. To the church age, and the precedence was in the person of Christ, and and Christ's reliance upon the filling of God the Holy Spirit. So Paul, it's given to Paul the the uh, responsibility to reveal the distinctions of this mystery for the church age, Ephesians three five, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets. By means of the Spirit. There's that phrase again. I I much prefer to translate this by means of the Spirit because in the Spirit sounds almost mystical. But in the Greek phrase, it's very specific. It is an instrumental dative. To be specific, this is the mystery, that the Gentiles are joint heirs or fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now notice... (coughs) The essential part of this mystery, not all of it, but the core area relates to the fact that there is no longer a distinction between Jew and Gentile. That relates to the baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit. So this tells us that the role of God the Holy Spirit in this church age is unlike it's been at any other time in history. And that is why an understanding of the Holy Spirit today is crucial to being able to understand the spiritual life, the life of the believer, after salvation. Ephesians 3.25, Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship, or konomia again, the administration from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is, the mystery, the mystery doctrine of the church age, which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested, revealed, that is, to his saints. How is that? Through New Testament epistles. Fourth, the distinctive character of the church. Abraham didn't have any of these. Elijah didn't have any of these benefits. Isaiah didn't have any of these benefits. Daniel did not have any of these benefits. In fact, no believer in the Old Testament had any of these blessings in relation to their spiritual life. What are they? First of all, union with Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Every believer in this age, at the instant of salvation, is united with Christ by means of the baptism, uh, by means of the Holy Spirit. Through the baptism by the Holy Spirit, every believer is united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. We are one with Christ. We are new creatures in Christ. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are new. Second benefit we have that no Old Testament believer ever had is that Jesus Christ personally indwells every believer, John fourteen twenty, Jesus Christ personally indwells every single believer in the church age from the instant of salvation. Third, every believer is indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. Every single believer is indwelt by God the Holy Spirit from the instant of salvation. That never happened to anyone in the Old Testament. Those that did have a ministry of the Holy Spirit, which I call the endowment of the Holy Spirit to distinguish it, did not have the Holy Spirit in relationship to their spiritual life. The Holy Spirit gave them special abilities, military abilities, leadership abilities, craftsman abilities, and some function related to the administration of the theocratic kingdom of Israel. It was not given to them for their spiritual life. There were less than a hundred people in the Old Testament given the Holy Spirit, and it was all oriented to leadership skills. Fourth, every believer in the church age is a priest. In the Old Testament, you had two orders of priesthood the priesthood of Melchizedek and the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood in Israel. But in the church age, every believer is a priest and has immediate access to God the Father because of the work of Christ on the cross. 1 Peter 2.9 Fifth, they have a completed, we have a completed canon of Scripture. No Old Testament saint had a completed canon of Scripture. Their revelation was not sufficient. Ours is sufficient. We have a completed canon of Scripture. There is nothing that we need to know beyond what God has revealed In the scriptures. Sixth, believers in the church age are commanded to live a supernatural way of life. It is by means of God the Holy Spirit. We are filled by means of God the Holy Spirit. We are to walk by means of God the Holy Spirit. Morality is not the basis for the spiritual life. Unbelievers can live moral lives, but what is expected of believers goes beyond morality. It is specifically energized by means of God the Holy Spirit. And seventh, every believer in Jesus Christ is an ambassador representing Jesus Christ on the earth. Our citizenship is not here on the earth. That's referred to under the metaphor of polituma in uh, Philippians chapter 3. We are citizens of heaven and we are on uh, extended assignment on the earth to represent Jesus Christ as an ambassador and to function in our priesthood as witnesses in the gospel. So these are unique features that no one in the Old Testament had. This elevates every church-age believer far above all Old Testament believers. And this is based on the fact that we are given a unique spiritual life in the church age, and we will come back next time and look at the unique spiritual life of the church age. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this time together to study your word that we might be challenged by the wonderful privileges and assets you have given us as believers in this church age, that we might not squander these uh, tremendous blessings, but that we might advance to spiritual maturity, that we might understand their, their significance, and that we might fulfill our responsibilities as believer priests, to be ambassadors and witnesses and to glorify you both before men and in the angelic conflict. We pray that we might uh, be willing to step up to this challenge and be willing to advance to spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.